to ask college students to keep um, the CIA secret seems to me like perhaps a bad idea. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Audra J. Wolfe is a writer, editor and historian based in Philadelphia. With a background in both science and history, her work specifically focuses on the role of science during the Cold War, a period when science held a special place in maintaining and projecting state power. Now, if you'd like to support us with a few dollars, pounds or rubles, then head over to coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option to learn some more. Thank you so much to all our fans that are supporting us. It is really appreciated. If that's not your cup of tea, then you can really help us by leaving reviews on iTunes or with your favourite podcast provider. It helps raise our profile and get guests on the show. Now, back to today's episode, where Audra and I met at Manchester University, where she's currently on a lecture tour. Welcome to Cold War Conversations, Audra. Hello, thanks so much for having me on. So we're here to uh, talk about your your latest book, Freedom's Laboratory, The Cold War Struggle for the Soul of Science. Now, it's safe to say until I read this book, I hadn't realized how much of a battle there was in the scientific world during the Cold War. So I did find it very interesting. Yeah, I think when we think about science in the Cold War, we tend to think about objects or we think about weapons. Uh, but this book is really about, it, it's not so much about the uh, s- uh, stuff of science, but about ideas about science. Um, so ideas that there would be some kind of Western science and that there would be some kind of communist science and how this really became uh, a, quite a fraught question um, and a topic for lots of propaganda. Right. And I want to come on to that because it's a very interesting uh concept that how how did the original idea for the book come about well um i had originally thought that um there there were several incarnations of this book but i'll start with the first one i thought i was going to be uh, writing a biography of the american geneticist bentley glass um and glass was a fascinating character because his story didn't match any of the stories that historians of science usually tell about science in the cold war um, usually the story is that scientists who had access to uh, various kinds of positions of power and administrative authority, that they really towed the political line, that they didn't speak up, they kind of retreated to their labs. And Glass didn't do that. He was um, active in the Maryland ACLU for many years. He was active on a small scale in some civil rights issues. Um, he uh, d- did all sorts of things, spoke out a lot about fallout. And yet his career flourished. And every time he spoke out, he seemed to get more and more professional opportunities. And so I thought, what is it with this guy? Is there something about him? Um, or did we misunderstand this story? And over time, I realized that um, all the ways that he was speaking out against McCarthyism actually made him a useful character to send out on the international stage because he could talk about how scientists in the United States uh, could do dissent. He could really perform their dissent in some ways and show that scientists in America had a lot of freedom. And I realized that he started to have, uh, that he had a lot of ties to people with ties to the intelligence community. And I was trying to understand the role of, um, 
let's call them international men of science during this time period. Um, he's an interesting guy, and there are a lot of others like him. Right. So it wasn't all that it seemed with him. Well, there might have been layers, uh, many, many layers. Uh, he was a person who was more than happy to make himself useful to uh, the State Department or to uh, help the CIA identify people that they might work with. Um, at the same time that he was going out giving speeches about how the Atomic Energy Commission was possibly poisoning future generations. And I thought, this is really interesting. What is it with these guys? How are they getting away with this? Um, and basically, they were useful. They were absolutely useful to the government. Right. So they were being used as like propaganda tools to show that in the West, you could actively dissent from the 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 well, party line is probably the wrong <laughs> The, the wrong phrase versus the experience in Eastern Europe. Yes, although I would hesitate to, I, I'm a little uncomfortable with the language of use because part of what I think is so interesting about this story is that often the scientists are the ones who are approaching the government figures saying, hey, I have this international thing going on that I think might be really useful to you. And um, it might help us both out if we work together. Um, so the government is absolutely making use of them as figures. And I'm also very comfortable with the party line phrase because they explicitly were saying this is what's different than the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, there is a party line, there's a communist party line, and we don't have one. Um, and so we are able to go out and say whatever we want. Um, that was a kind of a mutually beneficial relationship for many years. And I think we'll probably come on to this, but presumably they were making some of these approaches around obtaining funding as well. So they were they were almost making a sales pitch saying it would be great if you funded my international project because it will support the Western view in the East. Yeah. So they're asking for all different kinds of support. Sometimes it's as easy as we need $25,000 to assemble this group of people in this place. Uh, sometimes it's visa help. We need help getting, uh, we need to work with some scientists who had communist affiliations in the 30s, and maybe it might be hard to get them into the country. And other times, it's more about um, finding ways that they might work together to promote the same view. A good example um, involved disarmament negotiations or test ban negotiations. There was a group of American scientists who, was who were involved with an international movement for disarmament called the Pugwash Movement. And the Americans were look looking for a closer relationship for the government, in part because, and they're not wrong about this, they were realizing that any um, international agreement about the control of nuclear weapons would have to have government consent. These, this would be who would be actually signing the agreement. So they wanted to figure out how closely they could align with the government in ways that they still felt comfortable and that they had control over. And I think reasonable people can disagree over... Um, how, whether they were too closely aligned, whether you could actually do that kind of outsider work while you're trying to simultaneously coordinate, say, with the State Department. Yeah, and you discuss that quandary in, in, in your book as to how they, how they handle that situation. One, one of the concepts you, you talk about in the book is Western science versus Marxist science. Now, that, that, I found that particularly interesting. Could you just explain a little bit more about that concept? Sure. Part of why it seems so foreign to our ears today is that we've sort of forgotten about Marxist science. Western science in many ways won the Cold War, and so now we only have one kind of science. Um, but particularly during the 30s and 40s and 50s, there was this notion that um, there was a version of science under communism 
that um, put the interest of pe- put the practical interest of the people first. Um, it might or might not be in line with uh, kind of principles of dialectical materialism, uh, but it would definitely be practically uh, practically oriented, um, maybe sort of nationalist. Uh, definitely, you know, focused on maybe more technology as opposed to basic science. Some of what I'm saying is really the American caricature of what science was like in the Soviet Union. And so science in the West was supposed to be the opposite of that. So science in the West was empirical. Um, it did not defer to authority. It was uh, free of politics. Uh, it was focused on basic research rather than uh, applied science. And science knows no borders. Science is international. Uh, both of these things are, are pretty much caricatures. Neither science wasn't quite working according to either of those frameworks in either the Soviet Union or the United States. Um, but the United, a lot of U.S. propaganda about science absolutely promoted the idea that these were opposite kinds of science. Okay. Okay. And presumably the 1957 launch of Sputnik massively affected the U- the US from their point of view of trying to be, you know, superior in science to suddenly, oh god, we haven't got anything in space yet these guys have managed to launch something. Right, it was both a crisis of conscience because the United States um they had some inklings that the Soviets were going to launch their Sputnik, uh but they hadn't quite grasped how much of a propaganda coup that was going to be. And so they had to do some real soul searching to figure out well, what can we say about American science if we want to promote our views, uh, particularly uh, to the to the to the developing world, to say that Western science would be better? And so, one of the things that they really um, honed in on was this idea that science in the West was cooperative, um, and that there was a difference between science and technology. So, the Soviets might be really good at big technological feats uh, like satellites, but maybe the United States was really the champion at. Um, creating opportunities for international scientific collaboration. And the wonderful, um, both idealistic and incredibly cynical thing about that approach is that anybody who does any kind of successful scientific finding anywhere in the world that's furthered by collaboration, the United States could then in some ways claim ideological credit for by saying we made these kinds of collaborations possible. And is that around the, because you talk about the concept of science for peace as well. Yes. So Science for Peace was sort of a response to um, the Sputnik, uh, which happened in the fall of 1957. And in January of 1958, President Eisenhower's State of the Union address uh, really pushed this idea of science for peace, that the Soviets might have these high technologies. uh, They had satellites. And of course, satellites were lofted by ICBMs, which are weapons. Um, So yes, the United States might be lagging in that race, but it could lead the way for cooperation. Um, and so uh, the United States Information Agency, which was the kind of official state propaganda agency, um, they declared 1958 a year of science. And all throughout the government, all sorts of government agencies were thinking about how can we use ideas about science to promote American values. Okay, because I, I guess there would have been a fear that with the Soviets able to launch objects into space, the worry would have been around the militarization of space. And this was sort of a way of countering that and trying to make space neutral. It's not just about the militarization of space. It's actually um, something much more straightforward, which was that um, the Sputnik was launched into space atop an ICBM. And it was really the first successful example of that. So it wasn't so much the first Sputnik, but really the second one that came a month later that was, um, I think, around a thousand pounds, a 1200 pounds, something like that. 
um, about the weight of a nuclear warhead. Um, so what that suggested was that the United, that the Soviet Union really did have the capability to do that. And none of the American ICBM tests had been successful. So for that period of time, the Soviets had these long range missiles. Um, and the United States didn't. And so, uh, there was a very deep fear of surprise attack of, uh, you know, in, until that time, um, any bombs that would have been dropped would have had to have been dropped from airplanes. And so this was basically saying, uh, missile warfare is in fact going to be possible and it's going to happen soon. Yeah. And completely unstoppable because there was not the technology to shoot down a missile in 1950s. Well, one can debate whether there's the technology to shoot down a, a nuclear missile in 2019. Well, we could go there. Yeah, <laughs> we could go there, but we might be here another few hours if we, if we start um, debating that. Um, you also talk about the role that scientists play in cultural diplomacy during the Cold War. Can you just elaborate a bit on that? Sure. So cultural diplomacy, uh, it can mean lots of different things, but it's basically that you're going to use ideas about uh, your own country's way of life to build alliances or to uh, maybe make connections between certain groups of people. This can be everything from exchange programs to uh, musical performances. Um, you know, one of the famous examples that, that many people have heard of is, um, that the CIA sponsored many modern art exhibitions in Europe. Um, and in part, that was because Soviet art focused on, on realism. Um, and so part of the point of these exhibits was to say that in the United States, artists have the freedom to depict whatever they want, even if it's, even if it's abstract scenes. And so something similar was happening with science, this idea that there was a particularly American version of science and it needed to be promoted. Sometimes this is done overtly, um, through, you know, conferences, through exchanges, and sometimes it's done covertly through things like, um, CIA fake foundations that were funneling, uh, money, um, actually to a group here in Manchester, something called the Committee for Science and Freedom. It was associated with, uh, one of the CIA's best known cultural fronts, the Committee on, uh, Cultural Freedom. And this Manchester based group, uh, put together conferences and published a bulletin basically promoting the idea that science and freedom had a very special relationship. It's it's really interesting that because one of the questions I was going to ask is what influence was also made on friendly. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War, uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. You know, countries to uh, the US, and obviously you've given that example there, where effectively front organisations were funding uh, conferences or, or uh, relations with the East as well. How prevalent was that? Was it mainly U.S.? Well, a lot of these front groups were based with um, kind of local intellectuals or local actors, uh, whether that was in England or whether that was in Paris or whether it was in uh, West Germany. Um, there were kind of a whole generation 
of uh, anti-Stalinists, kind of former, uh, sometimes they're called the non-communist left. Uh, these are people who were, um, sometimes they were socialists or sometimes they were sympathetic to socialist socialism. Um, sometimes they were even former communism, uh, former communists, and they became very disillusioned with Stalin and became anti-Stalinists. After World War II, some of them still thought of themselves as men of the left, and others didn't. Others uh, went pretty far to the right pretty quickly and became um, avid spokesmen for free enterprise. Uh, but so they were useful, particularly in Europe, uh, because the idea was that they had more in common with socialist intellectuals in Europe and that they could show that there was a center path. Um, that it didn't have to be sort of all rock and roll American capitalism or um, kind of Soviet realism, that there would be something in between um, and that there could be a path for cultural expression and a way to um, be uh, to have a mixed economy um, or to have uh, just kind of different perspectives on the world that weren't so black and white. So there could be effectively a third way that was neither communism or rampant American capitalism. Absolutely. And, it, you know, it's interesting that you say that because these relationships often depended on working with people who were former communists. Um, so for a long time, uh, one of the defenses, when people defend the CIA cult, uh, front operations, one of the ways that they that people defend them is to say, look, um, the State Department could never have funded these because it depended on relationships with communists. And um, anti-communism was so strong in the United States that any time anyone in the State Department talked to communists, the either the FBI or Congress attempted to shut it down. So um, some people have said that only the CIA could do this because the CIA never had to report exactly what it was doing to Congress. You know, I think some of that is uh, wishful thinking and obviously trying to justify certain kinds of actions. But on the other hand, there is some truth to it. Um, and the, uh, the State Department had problems with its science attaches in the early 1950s because they they had regular contacts with with communists and they kept getting investigated and the office basically got shut down. Um, you know, if you're the science attaché in Paris, it's your job to figure out what's going on with these scientists. And they weren't able to do it because it involved just too much contact with um, people who the FBI thought was suspicious. The CIA could get away with that kind of thing. Yeah. It's almost like they treated it like an illness. <laughs> They're going to get infected. <laughs> exactly. Now, presumably, these Western scientists were traveling to conferences in the Eastern Bloc. Were they sort of tasked with any how can I put it, extra jobs to do while they were out there? <laughs> That's a very tactful way to put it. Um, sometimes they were in the Eastern Bloc. More often they would be in um, kind of countries in Western Europe where there might be some Eastern Bloc scientists in attendance. Uh, but yes, yeah, so um, in the early days of the CIA, uh, the folks who were in charge of gathering scientific intelligence had the brilliant realization that the best way to collect scientific intelligence was just to encourage scientists to go out on the international field and exchange information. Because so much of, of what counts as intelligence isn't really the kind of thing that you get through cloak and dagger mm -hmm. techniques. It's things like who are the names of the top 10 scientists in your countries? What, what is this country good at in terms of scientific research? Um, what are their leading research um, institutions? And uh, what, are, what are they likely to be good at? And the folks at the CIA and the State Department realized that you could get that very effectively by creating opportunities um, for scientists to meet and mingle and share information. 
And it would be safer for everyone involved if they didn't realize that they were gathering intelligence while they were there. So they should go, go to their meetings, and then when they come back, be debriefed. Um, by it's unclear whether they were supposed to be debriefed by somebody who was witting of what would happen to this information or just a friendly face who really wanted to know all the details about what happened at this recent scientific <laughs> meeting. Um, but that was definitely happening. Um, and even now when you talk to scientists about this during this period, when they traveled abroad, absolutely. Every time they came back, they would be debriefed. You talk about the, the CIA involvement and that was very covert until 1967, wasn't it? And then suddenly somebody blew the lid. Right. So um, this, all of these CIA covers for cultural diplomacy, um, there, there were so many of them. And it's remarkable that the secrets were kept so long because they were working not only with intellectuals and writers and artists, they were working with college students and scientists. You know, to ask your college, to ask college students to keep um, the CIA secret seems to me like perhaps a bad idea to, uh, to begin with. Uh, but it went on for a long time. Um, and the media was willing to keep their secrets and these students were willing to keep their secrets. Um, that changed with Vietnam. Um, and fewer and fewer people were willing to trust the CIA and to keep those secrets for them. So, uh, the secrets started to emerge through the student groups, so the National Student Association. But, um, once those fronts started unraveling, um, they just sort of fell apart. The entire thing unraveled. And it also became a scoop war between the New York Times and the Washington Post. So between February 1967 and May 1967, almost every week, there would be another like headline story about, yes, labor got CIA money, artists got CIA money, writers got CIA money over and over and over again, um, to the point that it became really difficult to figure out who wasn't a CIA front. Right. They, they had created all these structures uh, to protect, to give the government plausible deniability. But it doesn't, as far as I can tell, it doesn't seem as if anyone had thought about giving private organizations the ability to deny their relationship with the government. Um, so all that fell apart in 1967. And after that, the CIA was uh, officially out of the uh, covert cultural diplomacy business. Yeah, because in, in Europe, I mean, state funding of cultural organizations is a very common or was, let's say, was a very common method of funding those organizations, and it wasn't necessarily thought of as a propaganda tool or anything like that. Right. Well, I mean, the State Department was also funding some of these, funding some of these kinds of activities overtly, um, but in part because uh, Congress had such an aversion to communism. Um, there was this question of who they could work with, and so the idea was that the CIA had more flexibility, but. Um, so much, uh, faith had been invested in these groups and these institutions that it sort of ruined all of that after 1967. Um, and so the State Department was doing slightly less of it as well. And it really discredited the entire concept of cultural diplomacy for, for almost a generation. Wow. Wow. And in, I, in the, in the United States. That yeah. Is. Yeah. And I presume Congress's view of communism is anybody who is, just slightly left of, <laughs> I don't know, I, I'm trying not to get into a stereotype here, but I, I guess that, you know, any, anybody who's expressing anything that might be slightly left-wing views would be viewed as a, as a communist in an organization that they couldn't fund. I think in the 1950s, absolutely. And that was starting to change in the 1960s. But, you know, I should say um, these cultural diplomacy programs really fell out of fashion for a number of reasons. And it wasn't just the front. Uh, one of them was that um, it really depended on 
private relationships. So even if they were overt relationships, so much of these uh, propaganda campaigns and cultural campaigns depended on partnerships with private organizations. And that kind of arrangement only works when the government really trusts that these um, private individuals are going to uh, carry out the right message. And that's going to work best in a consensus system. So in the 1950s and early 1960s, when everybody agreed that fighting the menace of global communism was the number one problem, that system worked. Um, but that, you know, consensus really started to fray in the 1960s um, as uh, the war in Vietnam heated up and became more controversial. Um, the government wasn't sure that it could trust these scientists to, or, or other private individuals to go out and do it. In other cases, um, you know, there were some tensions built into it. So the State Department had a lot of relationships with jazz musicians. Um, and they would often send these jazz, jazz musicians to uh, countries in the global south. These, these would be black musicians going to, uh, recently, uh, to newly independent countries in Africa. And, they would talk about what was happening with civil rights and racism in the United States South. Um, and Congress, when Congress got word of that back, they did not like that one bit. Um, it was, uh, these jazz performances, uh, were incredible forms of cultural diplomacy. Um, and nobody was saying that Louis Armstrong was a communist, but, um, he was drawing attention to some of the things that the United States government didn't want in its propaganda program. So, um, these are issues that come up anytime that you're sending out private citizens uh, to do your your diplomacy work for you. Yeah. Yeah. In in the US, is there anything like the Official Secrets Act that we have in the UK? Tell me more about the Official Secrets Act. Well, basically, it's a piece of paper that you're asked to sign if you have any knowledge of anything secret that the government doesn't want to get outside. Um, and the penalty is like 30 years in prison and various other. Yeah, I, I don't know the, the official name of it, but absolutely. If you were made officially witting, uh, to secrets, um, you would ask, you would be asked to sign something to swear kind of an oath and there would be penalties, often 20 to 30 years in prison. So one of the things that happened with this student group, um, uh, this was the National Student Organization and they received some funding from the CIA, but they were a pretty mainstream college kind of student organization. Um, but every year the, uh, the, the folks who would run for office would be sort of handpicked and vetted. And if they won an officership, um, they were then brought into the fold and they would have to sign this oath. Um, and what happened was that, um, some other people who would be involved in administration would catch winds of things via some funding. Like, where's this money coming from? Where? And so these are people who hadn't even signed the oath. They weren't even winning. Uh, but again, in the past, most of the people involved were willing to say, oh, okay, I didn't expect to know that, but all right, I will keep that to myself. Um, and that changed in 1966 and 1967. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess there's that quandary with, do we really want them to know where the money's coming from or not? And then, and then, I guess then you've got that plausible deniability, but uh... yeah, well, the entire ways that these uh, fake foundations were set up were created so that people could choose to not ask questions if they didn't want to, and so a lot of people were never officially made witting um, because say say your organization received money, say say you were an organization that received a grant from the Congress for Cultural Freedom, and the Congress for Cultural Freedom received its money from the Farfield Foundation. Well, the Farfield Foundation was a fake foundation, basically set up to launder the CIA's money. But the Congress for Cultural Freedom, it is true, did not directly get its money from the CIA. It got its money 
from the Farfield Foundation. Um, so there's always at least one foundation in between. So nobody's getting direct money from that. So it's a bit, it's a bit like cutouts in terms of espionage, just keeping these yeah. cells separate. Exactly. Um, fascinating stuff. I mean, what what was the most surprising bit of research that you found that you thought, wow, I just never realized that? I was... Um, Really surprised to learn the role of biology textbooks as a form of kind of cultural imperialism or cultural diplomacy throughout Asia. Um, the, uh, th- there was one of these CIA groups was operating on the perimeter of the People's Republic of China, and they were very concerned about Chinese textbooks kind of flooding, flooding these areas. But they also wanted to, um, uh, to encourage the development of uh, of these cultures in certain ways that might um, point them towards liberal democracy and that they thought that societies would change in certain ways. Um, and the way to change society would be to uh, teach students to think like scientists. So it wasn't that they were trying to uh, uh, teach them specific facts about biology, uh, but more that um, that science was rational. Science was empirical. Science, you know, it didn't uh, bow to authority. Um, so there's some wonderful stories about that and, and just the, the whole concept that the CIA would be pouring money into biology textbook translation seems so unlikely to me. Um, it, it was a rather remarkable story to find. Yeah, you have that great story about the earthworms, but um, I'll, I'll get people to buy the book to, re- <laughs> to uh, read about that. Um, you, you also talk about um, the use of psychological warfare. Or, or the the influence of of science with psychological warfare. Can you just expand a little bit on that? Sure. Well, so I've been talking a lot about propaganda and cultural diplomacy, and um, we don't normally talk about those as a form of psychological warfare. But they were actually seen as kind of part of a broader branch of psychological warfare when um, the folks in charge of doing U.S. foreign policy were thinking about different kinds of warfare in the late 1940s and 50s, they would put together whole charts. And for them, psychological warfare was um, everything from economic warfare, um, programs like the Marshall Plan, to um, things that we think of as as classic psychological warfare, you know, dropping leaflets uh, via balloons, you know, past, past national borders, to these more subtle things about um, cultural exchange that might uh, provide elites um, in communist countries, a way to see what life was like in the United States in hopes that they would go back and and uh, kind of change views at home. So it's a pretty wide category, and science is part of that. Now, science is also part of putting together ideas about what psychological warfare looks like in the first place, whether it's communication sciences about um, how to persuade people of, of different ideas, or whether it's um, these certain predictive models of how cultures change that were very popular in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Um, also, um, theories of counterinsurgency and how counterinsurgency works. Um, two, two more technical things, like how do you unjam a radio broadcast? Um, so scientists actually absolutely were part of that as both technical professionals and as the subjects of the messages that were being promoted. Because some of that does come across in sort of like the culture of that period. I mean, if you think of films like The Manchurian Candidate and that that whole brainwashing and that sort of came out of the Korean War mm-hmm. period and that 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 you know that that fear that you could change minds through certain techniques. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it, it was a huge thing at that point. And and some of these early studies in how to do psychological warfare. One was called Project Troy uh, in the in the early nineteen fifties. 
um, they weren't actually asked to uh, give their opinion on how to do this. They were, they were given a very specific task, help us unjam these radio broadcasts. Um, and instead, they produced an 80-some page document that outlined um, all the possible ways that the United States might marshal its uh, various tools of persuasion. But one of the lasting outcomes of Project Troy was to build relationships between the CIA um, and various uh, university departments at MIT and the University of Michigan, where um, social scientists in particular were really producing a lot of these ideas well into the future. If you were going to do an elevator pitch as to yeah. why people should buy the book, Sure. Sell it to me. I've already got it, but sure. sell it to me. Sure. So this is really a book about why so many scientists insist on saying that science has no politics when it's patently obvious that that's not true. And there are a lot of different answers to that question, but Cold War propaganda is absolutely one of the most important um, uh, answers to that question. So this is a this will help you understand that question. Great. Thank you for that. And the book's already out. I love the cover photo. How, how did that design get arrived at? Well, uh, my publisher worked with a designer who came up with some ideas that had less on it, just basically a, a very text-based cover. And I said, we need some stuff. So I sent them a whole set of icons, everything from uh, the atomic symbol to a Sputnik to a fly to things like a, uh, like a sheaf of wheat, uh, which would represent um, a Soviet geneticist or agronomist by the name of Trofim Lysenko and, and some other ideas like that. And we ended up with with a Sputnik and a fly and, and an atom with a little bit of declassified there at the bottom and the top. You know what? I hadn't noticed the fly. Oh. I well, hadn't noticed the fly well, you know, <laughs> until we had you some, pointed it out. I had, thought I'd spilt some coffee on there. No, we actually had some design debate because if you see the book, um, the fly is located just above the apostrophe in Freedom's Laboratory. And there was some debate uh, between the editor and the designer and me about whether the fly should either be further from the apostrophe or whether the fly should itself be the apostrophe. <laughs> now that would that that I would have gone be the apostrophe actually. I I love that sort of like hidden hidden uh, messages in there. Um, well, I do recommend the book. I have read it, and anybody who's interested in Cold War history, I'd recommend it too. There's loads of really interesting stories. One of the things I really like is the start of each chapter starts off with a sort of small story around particular people or, or a particular event and then leads on to the uh, the subject matter of the chapter, and that, that really works because it sort of it, it does draw you in. Um, but Audra, I did promise you a little bit of a, a fun section, um, which uh, we do do with uh, a few of our guests if we have time. And I think we do have time. Um, so, Audra, what, what would you say is your favorite Cold War film? Well, I'm a giant fan of Dr. Strangelove. I know it's a I know it's a classic and it's a cliche, uh, but I think if you can watch one film about the Cold War, uh, particularly for the madness that is uh, 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 mutually assured destruction, um, you can't do better than Dr. Strangelove. I'd, I'd go for that. I mean, anything with Peter Sellers in is always is always good. I'm trying to think he's probably made some bad ones. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, if you had an unlimited budget and you're a film director, what Cold War incident would you uh, capture in your film? It's actually sort of low budget, but I uh, so it wouldn't require a particularly massive budget, but I want to make a movie about, or I would want to write a novel about um, 
Some of these science attaches who were working for the State Department, they seem to have had fascinating lives. And they left uh, pretty detailed art, uh, diaries. So in some ways, you could you could make it uh, pretty close to what actually happened. Um, these were people who would be stationed in places like Paris or Bonn. And they spent most of their time, as far as I can tell, going to luncheons and cocktail parties. Uh, there's a lovely story in which uh, somebody spends a weekend at, um, at a ruin somewhere and they 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 hear a chamber of music and they they drive around in cars and then on the side um the attaché pulls um a famous french biologist to the side and basically says what have you heard about um the koreans and biological warfare do french do the french people believe that this is real that the koreans were really using biological warfare or that the americans were really using biological warfare in korea um it's it's an amazing example of just kind of completely mundane um, intelligence gathering in a way that I love. And they got themselves in all kinds of other trouble and adventures too. Sounds like a tough gig though, doing that every weekend. <laughs> yeah, they went to, they went to a lot of parties. Uh, but part of what made me think that this would be a great story to tell is that, uh, there's one of these attaches was a man by the name of Jeffries Wyman. And he, uh, was in the Paris office. And in his role of being in the Paris office, he met, uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer when Oppenheimer was passing through Paris. And then he met another man by the name of Chevalier, who was part of um, Oppenheimer's security problems. And so these visits uh, from these two people got him in so much trouble a few weeks later. He took a working holiday to Rome. He goes through all of these laboratories, but he also takes in the site. It's Easter. He he watches mass on Easter, you know, from, from outside St. Peter's. Um, and then one night these security agents basically show up at his hotel room and say, we need to talk to you. Or he gets a phone call that they're going to come. They don't actually come. That's that's a whole other story. But um, he gets a phone call that they're going to come to his office. And they basically want to say, why are you talking to people who might be communist? He's like, it's J. Robin Oppenheimer. He was in Paris. It's my job. Uh, but this kind of thing happened to this person over and over and over again. So I think there's a great story to be told about the simultaneously exciting and very kind of high-end and extremely boring life of these science attaches. Right. Okay. Let's see if we can get somebody to uh, to do that. Now, I, I'd imagine you have an expansive library of um, of books that you use for research, but what, what would you say is your most prized book? Hmm. It can be more than one. Right. Well, book, books for research are tricky because so much of this is a, is an archive book or a, uh, an, an online archive book. I made great use of the CIA's Freedom of Information Act reading room. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll be honest, uh, when I finish this book, I, I have quite a few books about, um, covert cultural diplomacy and the CIA's role in this. When I, when I finished this book, it left, um, it was so distressing. The kinds of relationships that people were doing, I actually moved them all out of my office. Uh, so this is sort of the opposite to the opposite answer to your yeah. question is that I actually removed all the books on the CIA out of my office and put them in a different room in my house. Right. Because I was so I was so perplexed and disturbed by the way that uh, these ideas about science and freedom had got wrapped up in cultural diplomacy. Wow. Wow. Because what one of the questions I I did have for you. Um, and we're, we're, I'll, I'll ask you that at the, at, at the end. So just, just, just stay with me. Um, so if you could invite three people from the Cold War period to have a few beers or maybe some coffees with, who would they be and what questions would you ask them? Well, I, w I would want to meet the science attaché, Jeffries Wyman. I, I want to know more about what he was doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Was he actually gathering intelligence or not? 
um, I would want to talk to his boss, uh, a man by the name of uh, Joseph Kefley, who was the first science advisor to the State Department, who seems to have spent all of his time uh, processing visas and trying to keep his science attaches out of trouble. Um, and then I would think I would want to talk to um, one of these run-of-the-mill scientists engaged in these programs to get a better sense of what they thought they were up to. Um, you know who I think I would want to meet? Michael, the scientist Michael Polanyi's son, George Polanyi, who lived here in Manchester and was running these um, CIA-backed, um, uh, this Committee on Science and Freedom. Uh, George Polanyi seems like a, a fascinating character, uh, not a very good editor. Uh, he seems like maybe a difficult man, um, but I would love to know more about uh, what he thought he was doing. Uh, it's unclear how much interaction he had even with other scientists. Um, were all these people actually in conversation with one another or not? Um, how did they see these? I think I think we could have a great conversation about that. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a, a fine trio of characters there. Lastly, can you recommend a film or TV series that you think is a good factual or fictional representation of science in the Cold War? So I love The Americans. And I realize that The Americans is not entirely about science, but seasons two and three have a lot of scientific intelligence in them. Um, whether it's the physicist who uh, the Soviet Union, uh, who had kind of been to the United States and the Soviet Union abducts back and takes to the Soviet Union, or uh, whether it's search for kind of airplane coatings, uh, things that we might think of as, as stealth planes. Um, I love that show. It's possible that I like it so much because I le know less about the 1980s. <laughs> and so I can, I can enjoy it without worrying about how factually accurate it is. Um, but yeah, seasons two and three have a lot of scientific intelligence in them. We don't think of it as a science show, but it's, it's a pretty great show. That's good. That's good. I really like The Americans. Um, well, I, you know, I actually haven't finished the last season yet, so okay. I still don't know how it ends. Okay. Well, we won't we won't <laughs> say anything here. Um, you're going to have to watch what you get where you go on the internet. I'll tell you because otherwise, it's it, you're going to know. But um, yeah, no, it's a really intriguing series, and uh, yeah, no, re really good show. I think the family dynamics and the whole the daughter and the you know that that is 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 brilliant but anyway we could talk for hours on that audra it's been an absolute pleasure having you on cold war conversations thank you so much this was a really a pleasure no it's well doing an interview face to face makes a big difference um as i said to you earlier i do a lot of these uh online but it's been really entertaining and uh i think i've learned a lot and my listeners will learn even more if you buy freedom's laboratory the cold war struggle for the soul of science out now there'll be links on the show notes thank you very much audra thank you well that's all we had time for but i hope you enjoyed my chat with audra if you'd like to read audra's book head over to our show notes at coldwarconversations.com where there are links to the book. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners like yourselves continue the Cold War Conversation. Just go to our website, coldwarconversations.com and click on the Join the Conversation option. Thank you very much for listening. It's really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.